One of the basic or fundamental components or aspects of the Christian life is the fact that we are to seek to be like Christ. There are so many passages of Scripture that encourage us to be like Christ and exhort us to be like Christ. Time would fail us if we tried to list them all, all that are related to that topic. The primary focus of those kinds of passages is that we are to be like Christ in our character, or we are to be like Christ in our actions. But, don't miss this, that doesn't exclude the idea that we are to be like Christ in our methodology. What I mean is, it is also important for us to learn how Jesus did things so we can do things the way he did things. Now, I understand that we can't always do things exactly the way Jesus did things. That's, that's a given. Just reading the gospel accounts, it's obvious that there are many things he did we cannot do. But we can certainly learn from his example and implement much of it. That's one of the things we began to consider last week as we looked at the first 26 verses of John chapter 4. And we want to return to that chapter again for this message. So please, if you're not there already, turn with me to the fourth gospel account, the fourth gospel record, the gospel of John chapter 4. Our text for this message will be verses 27 through 42, so please follow along as in your Bible as I read these verses for us. Remember, Jesus has been speaking with a woman at the well. His disciples had gone to buy food, so we're sort of jumping into the middle of the story. Verse 27, John tells us, <coughs> and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This passage is obviously an extension of verses 1 through 26, 
which we considered last Lord's Day. So in order to really appreciate this text, let's remind ourselves of what we saw in that message last week. Verse 1 of this chapter tells us that the ministry of Jesus became very popular. In fact, his ministry exceeded the popularity of the ministry of John the baptizer. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the baptizer. And we are told in the early verses of this chapter that the Pharisees were bothered by this. They were concerned. They were upset. John was bad enough to deal with, and now there's this new rabbi, this new teacher, who's baptizing more disciples, has more of a following than even John. When the Pharisees were upset as a result of that, Jesus decided to leave the southern province of Judea to avoid a confrontation with the Pharisees. Now, it's not that Jesus was afraid of a confrontation, because many times in his ministry he did things purposely just so he could bring about a confrontation with the religious traditionalists of that day. We've seen that in the occasions when he healed on the Sabbath specifically to make a point and to bring about a confrontation. But he knew that this was not the right time. This is, remember, this is very early in his ministry. Only John tells us about this first year of Jesus' ministry. The synoptic gospels don't tell us anything about this first year. So these these chapters of John, 1, 2, 3, 4, and, and even part of 5 are unique to John's gospel alone. It's the first year of his ministry. So the timing wasn't right for a confrontation, not this early on. So Jesus left Judea to go north to Galilee. Verse 4 tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Well, the fact of the matter is he didn't have to go through Samaria because most Jews didn't go through Samaria. So the had to of that verse, or the must, or the needed of that verse, is not saying that Jesus had no other options. He could have gone around Samaria, gone over to the east side of the Jordan, up the east side, and then come back into Galilee, which is what most of the Jews did, who traveled south to north, or even north to south. So Jesus refused to go along with the customary practice of the Jews of his day, who would go around Samaria when traveling. Why did they do that? Because the fact is they didn't want to get Samaritan dust on their feet. They didn't want Samaritan dust or dirt on their feet. Jesus broke with tradition so he could break down the barrier of hatred between the Jew and the Samaritan. But the most important reason why he went through Samaria was because he knew that there was a woman there who needed living water. Verses 7 through 26 record the fact that while the disciples were gone away into the city to buy food, Jesus entered into a conversation with a woman of Samaria who had come to draw water. Remember, she came alone, which was not the norm. Most of the time, women would come as a group. That way there would be some protection as having a group, not by themselves. But this woman was an outcast. She came alone. Jesus engaged her in conversation. Through the process of the conversation, Jesus brought this woman to the point where she saw her need for a pure heart. In in verse 25, she expresses her desire to follow the Messiah. She expresses her desire to, to want to know what the Messiah would say, what the Messiah would tell them to do. So in verse 26, Jesus reveals to her that he is the one she is looking for because he is the Messiah. 
At that point, this woman reached out by faith to receive living water. You can't see it in the text. You can't see it happen because you can never see salvation happen. It's an internal transaction. You can see the results of salvation, but you can't see what happens in a person's heart. You only see the results that are produced. But at that point, an internal transformation took place. She was, to borrow Paul's words out of Colossians, she was delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of Christ. To use the words of John 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, she was born again. That's where we left off last week. Verses 27 through 42 continue the story, but the theme changes. The focus changes. The theme of verses 1 through 26 is the need of the Samaritan woman for eternal life. But the theme of verses 27 through 42 is the need of the disciples to catch the vision Jesus had for reaching the lost. So in verses 27 through 42, Jesus passes on the vision to his men. Here in these verses, Jesus discloses the purpose of his mission to his disciples. His desire was that they would share in his purpose, his goal, his mission to reach others. His heart for other people. Now, maybe you've forgotten, but this wasn't a natural thing for the disciples. Not at all. In fact, years later, all the way into the book of Acts, it was really an ordeal to get Peter to take the gospel to a Gentile. Jesus had to give Peter a vision three times while Peter was on the housetop. He had to send an angelic uh, visitation to Cornelius to summon Peter to go. I mean, this took a lot of work just to get Peter to be willing to do that. And as I said earlier, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. His men at this point were very myopic, very um, prejudiced. They really didn't care about anyone but Jewish people. And who knows, maybe they didn't even care about most Jewish people. So this is, a major, this is a major turning point that Jesus is seeking to accomplish. He wants his men to embrace his mission. In Luke 19.10, Jesus stated his mission when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was our Lord's purpose, his mission. Since that was his purpose or his goal, his strategy was to enlist his men in his service to be co-laborers or to become co-laborers with him. As Robert Coleman put it in his excellent book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, I quote, men were his method. It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes could follow. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. The initial objective of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after he returned to the Father. End quote. So what we have here in verses 27 through 42 is the beginning of that extremely important process. I mean, think about it this way. This is hypothetical. 
But think of Jesus coming here to this earth, dying on the cross, paying for our redemption, being placed in the tomb, being raised from the dead, going back to earth, going back to heaven to the right hand of the Father, and leaving no one on earth to carry on the work. Now it's unthinkable. Jesus knew from the very beginning the day would come he would have to leave. Someone had to carry on the work. These were the men who would carry on the work. And that is why we have in the very next book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, that is often called the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Ascended Christ, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Jesus knew what he was doing. A few months after this, in Matthew 4.19, Jesus will say to some of these men, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was the goal of Jesus for his men all along when he chose them. And we know that by the end of his ministry, Jesus accomplished his goal because in John 17, 18, he said to the Father, as you, Father, have sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. Here in John 4, we get to see how Jesus began to move toward that goal. This is the beginning of that significant project that Jesus took on when he called his men. So with that as background, let's examine this story together. Verse 27, John tells us, and at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Now this is what related to what I was just saying a moment ago. At this point the disciples were not very far along spiritually. They suffered from the same disease of prejudice that most of the Jews of their day had. In fact, the rabbis had a saying that went like this, quote, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not with his own wife, end quote. As I mentioned last week, sentiment for, for women in that culture was extremely low, but it wasn't right. Jesus refused to go along with the wrong practices of his day. He never looked down on women. In fact, one of the fascinating studies of the New Testament is just to study the key women in the life and ministry of Jesus. So by this very act of talking with this woman, Jesus began to break down some of the hard-heartedness of his disciples, some of the prejudice of his disciples, some of the wrong thinking of his disciples. Verse 28 tells us, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men. She left her water pot, for one, because she was in such a hurry to tell others what had happened to her. Besides, she was bound and determined to come right back. She knew she wouldn't be long. So she goes off in verse 29, says that she reported to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I smile when I read this verse because this woman has already learned a little bit from Jesus about how to communicate skillfully. She probably phrased her question like this because she knew that the men would not respond favorably to a dogmatic assertion from her. So she basically baits them with her wording. Come, see, see a man who told me everything about my life. Could this be the Christ? Think this is him? Verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him. A literal translation of this verse would read like this. Then they went out of the city and kept coming to him. It's durative action in the original language. 
The thought here is that many people left the city to go see about this man, Jesus. They just kept coming. They were streaming out of the city to go to Jacob's well to look into this situation for themselves. Probably one of the reasons why the response was so large was because John the baptizer had carried out part of his baptizing ministry near this area. And remember what John's message was. Basically, his message was, you need to prepare your heart because the Messiah is coming. And if you really want your heart to be prepared and you're really serious about a a heart change, then carry through with baptism as an external indication of your willingness to have a heart change. John the Baptist, John the baptizer, prepared the way. So it's very likely that the Samaritans, or at least a large number of them, were looking for the Messiah to break on the scene at any time. They're anticipating him. That's what John had said. He's coming. He's here in our midst. He'll burst on the scene at any moment. So they're ready. This woman says, hey, could this be him? Out they go. They flock to this man. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now remember what we saw last week. Jesus is very tired at this point. In fact, John's wording of the way he sat at the well, he sat in a very tired fashion. It was obvious when you looked at it, he was tired, he was exhausted, he was hungry. But there was something far more important to him than food. And he wants to drive home this point to his disciples. So that's why he hasn't eaten yet. Remember what the focus is of these verses. The focus has shifted from this woman now to the disciples in the work that Jesus needs to do in their hearts and in their lives. So in verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Interestingly, the I and the you in this verse, in the original text, the original language, are emphatic to really make a contrast. I have something that drives me that you don't know anything about yet. I have something that compels me, that fuels me, that you don't have yet. And it's as if Jesus is saying, but I want you to have it. I want you to get it. You need to get there, but you don't have it right now. There's there's an emphatic contrast here. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 33, therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? This question expects a no answer in the original language. You can ask questions two ways in the Greek language. One that assumes a yes answer. One that assumes a no answer. This one is worded to assume a no answer. No one's, they knew. No one brought him anything to eat, right? I mean, they knew that no one had brought him anything to eat. But they couldn't figure out why he wasn't hungry anymore. So in verses 34 through 38, he tells them, and this is really the heart of the text, because this is where Jesus seeks to grab their hearts and expand their vision and give them his mission, his purpose, his goals. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Once again, the my, the personal pronoun, is emphatic in this verse, in the original language. My food, my sustenance, My energy is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus perfectly exemplified the truth of Deuteronomy 8.3, 
which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The chief passion of Jesus' life was to do the Father's will. That was his strongest appetite. In John 5.30, he said, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John 8.29, he said, I always do those things that please him. That was clearly the consuming drive in his life. And it forces a question to us, what's ours? What is the consuming drive in our lives? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Sports? Things? What is the chief passion of our lives? Is it the Father's will? Is it the Word of God? Is it the work of the kingdom? Is it reaching the lost? The very essence of life for Jesus was to do the Father's will. As a result, Jesus could say at the end of his life in John 17, 4, as he prayed to the Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Now, it would be easy at this point for us to say, yeah, Jesus could do that, but it's unrealistic for a Christian to be able to ever say that. Yes and no. Yes, it is true that we will never be able to say that we always please the Father, though that should be our goal and our longing. But if we're honest, we, we would have to admit we don't always please the Father. So that's not possible for us to make such a claim, not honestly. But it is possible for us to carry out the work He's given us to do in our lives. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And when Paul said that, he wasn't just saying that he made it through life. I've heard people use that verse that way. Wow, I made it through life. Well, that's not the point. We all make it through life. Wherever we stop, whether you're young or old, you make it through as far as you make it through. That's, that completely, completely misses the point. The point is that he had done the things that God had planned for him to do with his life. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've done what the Lord wanted me to do. And that should be the goal of every one of us, beloved, the desire of every one of us. If we claim to belong to Jesus, we should pattern our lives after him. We should long to do the Father's will. 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. And how did Jesus walk? He walked in the Father's will, doing the Father's work, seeking to save the lost. So whatever the Lord has for you, it's different for all of us. Don't, don't ever forget that story of Peter and John in John 21 after the resurrection where Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die for him. And he, well, what about this guy, who, John, you know, following along? And Jesus said, what is it to you if I want him to remain until I come back? What is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about my plan for his life. Worry about my plan for your life. You just do what I want you to do, and he needs to worry about him doing what I want him to do. So it's different for all of us. But our goal, our desire should be, God, what do you want me to do with my life? That's what I want to do with it. That's how I want to live. In verse 35, Jesus continues, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for har harvest. As Jesus spoke these words, it is very likely that he was pointing to the steady stream of Samaritans who were filing toward him. 
The reason I say that is because they would have been wearing white robes because that was the normal attire for the day. From a distance, it would have looked like a field of white grain ready to be harvested. So here in verse 35, Jesus tells his men, look, just look. The harvest is ready. Jesus focuses their attention on the multitudes because, remember, he's trying to impart to them his passion for reaching others, his vision. Verse 36, he says, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. With this statement, Jesus is trying to impress upon his men the fact that reaching people, ministering to people, is a task that has eternal value. So many times we invest our lives in things that, that really have no eternal value, no lasting value. Which is why in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. The primary reference in that passage is money, but the principle is the same as the principle here in verse 36. Here in verse 36, Jesus is saying that those who have a passion to reach others and those who give themselves to that task and are involved in that, they are involved in something that has eternal implications. And whether you're the one who reaps the harvest or the one who prepared the way, doesn't really make any difference because, as Jesus says here, both rejoice together. The interesting thing about Jesus saying this to his disciples is that years later, both Peter and John would have the great joy of participating in another harvest among the Samaritans. That's recorded for us in Acts 8, 5 through 8, Acts 8, 14 through 17. Two of the men hearing Jesus say this would have a significant ministry among the Samaritans at a later date. But then in verse 37, Jesus continues his exhortation, his explanation, his imparting of his vision. He says, verse 37, For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. This was an important point for the disciples to understand. They were about to enter into a tremendous harvest among these Samaritans who were filing out of the city to come to Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus lets them know that someone else had done the preparation work. Someone else had already sort of laid the, the foundation. The disciples needed to realize that sometimes they would have the role as sower and not reaper. It's great to be the reaper. We all love that when we have the opportunity to lead someone to faith in Christ or help someone come to know the Lord. But sometimes God sees fit for us to be the sower, and we aren't the reaper. When Bev and I lived in Florida many years ago, I worked at an electrical plant for for two years while I was going to school. I worked the night shift, and my job was to assemble little electrical components. Since I worked at a, a workstation or work desk, and I didn't move around, I asked my boss if it'd be okay for me to listen to Bible study tapes and sermons on tape. And he said that would be okay, just as long as I kept the volume down so as not to offend the other workers. So every night for five hours while I was at work, I would listen to to tapes of Charles Swindoll, John MacArthur, Josh McDowell, Howard Hendricks, etc., many others. During that time, there was a young man with whom I worked, and he would occasionally ask me questions about the Bible and about the Lord, and, but he wasn't really all that interested. Just, just occasionally he would ask about something. 
I didn't push him or cram it down his throat, but I did enter, enter into conversations with him about spiritual things when the opportunity was there. Interestingly, every now and then, as time went on, he would ask me to turn up my tape so he could hear what was being said. Over those two years, this guy heard the gospel many times. When I left, when we moved from there, I gave him a little booklet, a little track called Destiny. It's a booklet that presents the gospel in a very clear and precise manner. A few months after we moved here, this same guy called me and said, Brian, I just wanted you to know that I've committed my life to Christ. And my response was, ah, oh, man, why did you wait till I moved away? In that case, I was the sower. I didn't get the privilege of reaping. I did the sowing. God gave the harvest. Someone else discipled the guy. And as the end of verse 36 puts it, we rejoice together. That's what verse 37 is talking about. The Apostle Paul uses this same analogy over in 1 Corinthians 3. Turn over there for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're probably familiar with this picture that Paul paints in 1 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Here Paul reminds us that sometimes the task of spiritual or, or, or the word taking fruit in someone's life is a process. You could even add to this. You could say, some till the soil, some plant the seed, some water the seed, some weed the soil. But then God is the only one who can give the increase. God is the only one who can really bring life to someone's heart. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach his men in John 4. Sometimes we sow Sometimes, maybe we, prior to that, sometimes we cultivate the soil. Sometimes we sow the seed. Sometimes we water. Sometimes we reap. But we all rejoice together when God gives the increase. Because we know it's always His work and not ours. Now back to John 4. So Jesus is teaching His men some concepts that, you know, you may look at these and say, well, this, you know, this is pretty basic. I, I mean, you know, this is pretty... This is pretty fundamental or basic. Yes, but remember, this is, this is very early in our Lord's discipling of his men. This was not something they had thought about. This was, these were concepts that were not in their hearts, not on their minds. Jesus had to implant these truths in their hearts. So he wants them to understand how it works and what the goal is and, and what his vision is. And he wants his men to understand these things. He wants them to understand some sow, some reap, but we're all to be a part of the process. And when we get the privilege of reaping, which is really the exciting part, we should never forget that in most cases, there were others who did the sowing or the watering, who preceded us. Verse 38, he says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. This is probably a reference to John the baptizer and his disciples. 
As I mentioned earlier, we know that he and they labored and ministered in Samaria. You can see this in chapter 3, verse 23. It's mentioned there. So Jesus seems to be referring to that. Listen, John prepared the way. He cultivated the soil. He planted the seed. God is now giving a harvest. You get to reap, but don't forget that there were others who preceded you. Interesting side point before we move on. The word labored here in this verse is the same word translated, depending on your version, translated weary back in verse 6. Or it's a very, it, it, the Greek words are, are, are basically the same. And what that tells us is spiritual laboring is a wearying task. It's, it's difficult work. It's not only difficult physically, it can be just the time you put in, but it, it can be very difficult emotionally. It can be very discouraging. That's why Galatians 6.9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That is, don't give up, don't give in, don't throw in the towel. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 say, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I like what Warren Wearsby had to say on this subject. He said this, quote, There is no place in the harvest for lazy people. The work is too difficult and the laborers are too few, end quote. Spiritual ministry is hard work if it's done right, if it's done properly. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about the elders who labor in the word and doctrine. The, the word labor there means to work to the point of sweat or exhaustion. So I'll say it again. Spiritual ministry is hard work if it's done properly. Jesus wants his men to realize this. This is no easy task. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be discouraging. So he takes this opportunity to lay these foundational truths in their lives before they actually get out there and get going with the, the task. Verse 39, John tells us, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. And as I've mentioned already a couple times, probably one of the reasons these Samaritans were so quick to believe, you know very well, it doesn't always happen like this. You don't go into an area and just present the gospel usually and have this overwhelming response. But in this case, they had been told by John the baptizer that the Messiah was on the scene. He's coming. You better get your hearts right. So those who wanted to get their hearts right were ready. They're looking. And if that was true, then they would have been anticipating his arrival. There's a beautiful thought here in this verse that I don't want us to miss before moving on, and it's this. I'm going to state the obvious, but I'll explain why I do. It was a brand new Christian woman who influenced all these others. Now, what is my point? My point is this. Sometimes we think we can't talk to others about the Lord because we don't know enough. We can't answer all the questions that people may have. But listen, beloved, even if we don't know all the issues, and nobody knows all the issues, nobody can answer all the questions, we can still tell others what the Lord has done in our lives. We can still bear witness to the fact that we've been forgiven. We've been changed. We've been redeemed. We've been transformed. Like the man in John 9 who, when he was questioned about the credibility of Jesus, you remember that, where they said, tell us, is the man a sinner? And his response is beautiful. He said, 
Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And that's the same testimony we can give. We may, we may not be able to answer all the questions that people have, but we can say this. Listen, one thing I do know, I don't know all, all of it. One thing I know is I used to be trapped by sin, but now I've been set free. I'm no longer a slave to sin as I used to be. This woman, think about it. This woman didn't know a lot, but she knew she had talked to the Messiah. She knew she had been transformed by the Messiah. That was her testimony, and God used that to bring all of these others out to hear from Jesus and to, to, to inspect him and see who is this guy. Verse 40 tells us, So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. I don't know how that strikes you, but that, you know, when I read that, it's like, man, they're begging him to stay, and okay, he stayed two days. That's not very long. He stayed only two days with them. Why? Well, for one thing, he had other work to be done up in Galilee, where he was going to headquarter his ministry and focus his ministry. Furthermore, I personally believe this is related to what we see back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, where Jesus, John tells us, Jesus did not commit himself to the new Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, most commentators take those as unbelievers. I'm not on that side. I think they were believers, but most commentators say, well, Jesus didn't commit himself to them, so they must have not been believers. Well, listen, he didn't commit himself to the Samaritans either. He only stayed two days. It's not much of a commitment to them. It's not that Jesus didn't love those new believers in Jerusalem or these new believers here in Samaria. It's just that he knew he could only commit to the twelve for an extended period of time. Remember, this was his plan of attack. This was his goal, as I mentioned at the beginning of the message. He knew what he had to do. He knew what he had to get done. So Jesus stayed in Samaria two days. He wanted to encourage these who had believed, but he knew he couldn't stay. So he stayed two days, and then he moved on. Verse 41 tells us, And many more believed because of his own word. Isn't that interesting? It's significant that these Samaritans didn't need miracles to believe in Jesus. They believed in him simply as a result of hearing his words. Now, not that it's wrong to believe in Jesus as a result of seeing his power. After all, John tells us that one of the reasons why he wrote his gospel and recorded these seven signs in his gospel is so that people would see those signs and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing have life in his name. So I'm not, not implying it was wrong for those who saw the miracles of Jesus to believe in him as a result. In fact, they should have believed in him as a result. He even said, listen, if you don't believe me, you should believe me for my work's sake. My works prove I'm who I claim to be. So it's not wrong to believe in Jesus as a result of seeing his power. But as Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This reminds me of the story Jesus told in Luke 16. Do you remember that story about the rich man who died and went to the place of fiery torment? While he was there in torment, he made a request to Abraham that someone be sent to warn his brothers lest they end up in the same place. Abraham's response was this. Fascinating. They have Moses and the prophets. Now, of course, Moses and the prophets weren't alive. 
That was a way to say they have the Word of God. They have what Moses wrote. They, they have what the prophet said. They have the Word of God. Let them hear that. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, no. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's, scripture's not enough. They need something miraculous to convince them. To which Abraham replied, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If they won't hear the word of God, all the miracles in the world won't convince them. Perfect illustration, the ministry of Jesus. Multiplied miracles. And people said, well, he's satanic. The miracles didn't convince if they weren't willing to believe the word of God. God puts a lot of stock in his word. These Samaritans, John tells us, believed when they heard the word of Jesus. And the words of Jesus transformed their lives. And so John closes out this story with this statement in verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that is exactly who Jesus is. He is the Savior of the world. But listen to this. Just because He's the Savior of the world doesn't mean He is your Savior automatically. There's nothing automatic about it. To be your Savior personally, you must personally receive Him as your Savior. If you are a Christian then ask yourself this question. Honestly, is the consuming desire of my life to do the Father's will? What is the chief passion in my life? Really, what is the chief passion in my life? Can we say with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. My delight, O oh God, is to do whatever you want me to do, and your word is in my heart. This passage here in John 4 gives a vision for every Christian to embrace, a challenge for every Christian to embrace. This very same challenge, the very same vision, the very same perspective Jesus wanted to give to his men. And that is there's a world of lost people out there that we should be burdened for, that we should love, that we should desire to reach, that we should pray for, that we should do whatever our role is, cultivating the soil, planting the seed, watering, whatever it is. But we should not become so, so focused on self that we forget there's a world of lost people. That Jesus himself said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That should move us. That should energize us. Let's pray to that end. Father, it's thrilling for us to watch the Lord Jesus at work. Even as last week we got to see him at work with this woman at the well and how he, he worked with her to bring her to the point where she was really ready to embrace him as the Messiah and then to piggyback from there and see how the Lord Jesus worked with his men, his disciples, to get them to catch the vision of what he had come to do and what he wanted them to do 
and what he wants us to do. So, Father, help us to take the principles from this passage, the things that Jesus sought to convey to his men and embrace them in our own lives. To not lose sight of the fact that there are people all around us who are lost, who are headed for a Christless eternity. And we know that we can only do so much. In fact, in a sense, we can do nothing because only you give the increase. But nonetheless, we are to be faithful. We are to seek to plant the seed, water the seed, whatever it is, just to play the part that you want us to play, to be faithful to the role that you have for us. Make that clear to us so that as we live life that way, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May each and every one of us here in this room be able to say that as we approach death. We, are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.